You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Robert Jacobson. Robert is an entrepreneur, advisor, and space advocate who believes that space holds the key to humanity's successful future. Robert is the founder of Space Advisors, a space and financial consulting firm for space startups. Today, Robert and I will be discussing his book titled Space is Open for Business, the Industry that Can Transform Humanity. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Tim. Um, you, you call space an industry that can transform humanity. What transformation do you anticipate in the near future? Well, I think the, the first thing that we're going to start seeing is, you know, people being in space at some sort of scale. It's always been kind of single digits. And once we start having uh, more regular non-professional astronauts going from, you know, just, you know, single digits to maybe then dozens of, of people, um, they're going to be spreading the you know message about you know whether it's the overview effect of how amazing the earth is or maybe um, they were fortunate enough to take a trip around the moon um, but we have um, i think it's being proposed by that japanese individual through spacex who's going to bring along some uh, some artists and other um, creative types to start telling that story about kind of the both the beauty of the earth the you know the majesty of the solar system and then also in parallel, we've got um, some really uh, amazing things going on on the satellite side, just as we have, you know, we all have like a, you know, some sort of little mobile device. It's gotten very powerful. Same thing has happened in uh, the satellite sector with miniaturization of electronics. And what started off as academic projects, there were these things called CubeSats and they were called CubeSats because they were, the form factor was basically 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters. And it was thought just to be a way to give a uh, um, kind of bench work for um, students in, in university, you know, a, a space related project. And then people started to fly those. And then um, some industries, people said, hey, could we aggregate these and maybe get something really powerful out of that? And that's what you're, you're starting to see, these smaller satellites that are going to provide, um, whether it's uh, new types of optical or spectral data, um, RF monitoring, weather monitoring, really the sky's the limit. And we know that our planet is changing, so we definitely need um, an increased amount of sensors and, and, and higher amount of granularity so we can hopefully make more informed decisions about um, how we're behaving and misbehaving here. That's, so that's an interesting uh, thread that you really emphasize in the book is, you know, we tend to think of, or it is easy to think of space industry as an investment in space. But of course, the investment is intended to improve life on Earth, not just, I mean, we, we can anticipate a distant future where we're colonizing space, but but really it's directed towards Earth again, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's great to think about the future and plan for the future, but we can really only be in the present right now. And and um, and space is sometimes tricky concept for people. It, it's 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 both easy and difficult. It can cause some real cognitive dissonance because you can't touch it. There's a lot of invisible invisible aspects to it. But it's really not that far away. The um, the border of space, you know, the international consensus is about 100 kilometers uh, above sea level. So it's really not that far away, but it's very difficult to get to. And only a few hundred individuals on the planet Earth have ever visited and a, and a, flew not, and a few non-humans. Um, so it's it sometimes just it's, it's kind of like that intangible 
aspect you know however we all can go out at night or most of us if we live in a fairly you know not we not let's find a place with some dark skies right. see whether we're going to see the moon see some um stars and other planets so we all have that shared experience through the millennia of being influenced by um you know the night sky one of the um things that's happening now that really is changing uh, i want to say landscape but of course that doesn't apply to space but uh the the situation is it's so much cheaper to fly to space now what are some of the projects underway that are changing the economics of actually getting payload to orbit well you have um kind of rapid iter reiteration and, and that's probably one of the uh, one of the chief proponents of that would be a company like spacex which is you know not afraid to fail operates very high tempo they have um, you know, system that works very well. They're, they're Falcon 9 that they um, that they're commercially flying many satellites successfully at high tempo, high success rate, and then using um, revenue and investment money to um, pepper investments in all sorts of other projects like their Starlink satellite project, their Starship, uh, you know, which in their kind of heavy lift capacity there. And you have companies like in um, Southern California, Relativity Space, which is uh, attempting to mostly um, build a rocket out of additive manufacturing, being 3D printing almost the entire um, rocket. They've not flown yet, but they're um, kind of setting a potential new um, kind of I guess it's the uh, the base of or, you know where where you can be for a, a space company you know, and that what that would translate to is potentially less people needed to actually build the rocket. They can be humans can be used for other aspects of uh, you know in that ecosystem, um, maybe building rockets faster, more reliably, different sizes. Um, you've got um, other companies like Rocket Lab out of. I guess you could say they're in some ways, you know, are they really a Kiwi company or are they a U.S. company? Because they kind of have aspects of both. I think they kind of play both sides, but they've already been um, flying successfully, commercial payloads. Um, uh, so there and there's uh, and there's other there's other launch companies out there internationally that are uh, that are probably trying to keep up, I think, with several of those. So we'll we'll see. I think there's still opportunities for a few others, but I'm not sure we'll see, you know, 100 plus launch companies like there currently are uh, being able to um, uh, commercially survive. One of the the fascinating aspects when you when you contrast a company like SpaceX and uh, Rocket Lab. Rocket Lab, um, they are sort of taking the viewpoint that they're like a taxi. I think you even say this in your, in your book. It's more like a taxi. It takes you to exactly the orbit you want to be in, but you, you have a small payload. But it also, because it's a small rocket, you can sort of choose when you go as well. Whereas SpaceX is really about cost per pound to orbit. We'll just put you into orbit as cheaply as possible, large amounts, you know, they may have a fast cadence, but you still have to wait to be on one of a launch with multiple satellites. What do you think of those two aspects? Do you see them both surviving? Do you see a cause for both? I think they'll be somewhere in the middle because I've I've um, met with companies that are working on the smaller launch. They will they will say that they are the counterpoint to um, a SpaceX philosophy that there are customers who um, really need to get to a dedicated place in orbit at a specific or as close as you can in terms of timing and because uh, many times you might be on a um, 
manifests and you might be delayed, uh, you know, with other, if you're, if you're ride sharing, which is if for people who don't know, basically you're piggybacking on, um, you, on the primary customer. So you might have like a big, you know, say satellite TV, geo, you know, synchronous satellite going up and they'll put some secondary customers on. So they don't really get to go exactly where they want to be or when they want to be, but it's a lot less expensive. So yeah, I do think there'll be a place for place for both. I, I, it'll also be kind of, I'm personally curious to see how the launch sites are going to evolve over time. You see many places trying to create spaceports uh, you know, they typically tend to be around coasts for the obvious reasons of, you know, it's just uh, a little less riskier, you know, you know, you don't want to crash, you know, have your rocket crash and potentially, uh, you know, cause harm to people or buildings. Um, but there are a few inland, inland ones that are being developed. And I'll be curious to see, you know, can they get to an operational place in terms of all the local regulations, uh, rightly, rightly so, um, you know, I think, you, you know, that you know, um, where I think, I think Texas, maybe Oklahoma, they're talking about one. Um, forget the one in Scotland, if that's inland Ooh, or not. Yeah. Um, well, and one of the, one of the challenges is they all are most effective when they're near the uh, equator and there's only so many locations next to water on the equator. Yeah. Um, do you see uh, SpaceX seems to be, uh, approaching this, like they're, they're recognizing that uh, be, living next to a launch site will be about as much fun as living next to an airport after a while. You know, you're going to have all these sonic booms and these enormous rockets going up. Do you see floating platforms for launch being a, a, a regular solution to that? Um, perhaps. And there, you know, I know there's companies looking at sea, kind of call it ocean based launch. Um, so, yeah, I, it's definitely a possibility. Again, I, I will start wondering. Um, when it comes to sea launch, are there going to be issues that we've not yet thought about? I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's a whale, maybe a whale population living there and it's disturbing them. Maybe, um, you know, there's always these things. Humans do a pretty good job of, you know, coming up with this really smart idea. We're going to like launch this rocket. It's going to be 10 miles off the coast. It's not going to bother anybody. Great light show. But there always seems to be these things that we'll eventually forget about that we'll have to kind of go out there and do, you know, and you, you try and experiment and realize maybe it doesn't go quite as planned. So it'll be interesting to see how the uh, the evolution of, of, uh, of especially sea launch progresses. But there was a com the commercial sea launch provider called Sea Launch. Uh, they had a pretty uh, rocky, um, rocky life. It was, you know, uh, Ukrainian, Russian company, US. And then at one point when it was kind of owned by both, I mean, like on the boat, you know, there was like a divider, you know, the, the, the kind of the Russians couldn't go to the US side, the US couldn't go to the Russian side, there was monitors, um, you know, that doesn't seem like a very efficient way to conduct uh, business. It sounds like an I Love Lucy episode. I'm pretty sure <laughs> there was one where they drew a line down the center of the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the when you talk about because one thing I think we can agree on is there's going to be a whole lot more stuff being launched into space. And so what used to be a drop in the bucket is now like, you know, a cup in the bucket, you know, like it, it, it's becoming more impactful in terms of the environmental concerns. Do you see that um, affecting the fuel choice? Because right now, you know, you have 
uh, hydrogen, uh, kerosene, methane, all these different varieties, and they all have a different impact on the environment. Do you see that uh, maybe the EPA, for example, would get involved and say you have to use this type of fuel, not that kind? I, I'm not. I'm really not sure, and I know there's been a little more um, focus on recently since you had some suborbital space launches in July 2021. So there were people, you know, there was a little more attention brought to that. But there's been some interesting looks saying like, you know, like say SpaceX's Starship, you'd have to fly an incredible number of times to get to any type of impact close to say commercial airline travel. Right. So I think at smaller scale, it's not gonna be an issue. They're, you know, they're gonna learn what works, they'll improve. Um, yeah, in terms of regulatory, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not sure. But you do raise in the book, and I thought this was a, a, a I don't think it was, I think it was, you were quoting somebody, but it was blue skies, not red tape. Um, and it was sort of a rallying cry around the idea that right now regulation hasn't caught up with space um, launches and space activity. Where do you see that headed? Well, I mean, I think that's almost could be, you could probably say that for most governing bodies, you know, public institutions, you know, they were set up, whether it's your uh, municipal waste, your electricity, these things were set up a long time ago. And the technology and sort of the, the current trends outpace what an agency can do. And what's happened in the space agency where they don't have enough people to process the, um, the licensing, um, whether it's for satellites or for launch, um, there's a lot of paperwork kind of on both sides. And there are probably ways that things like software could help improve, you know, or at least augment um, what's currently going on in that kind of uh, in the, kind of on the government regime side. So I think government will be forced. It's going to you know be a struggle to they're going to be dragged along. It's like you look who still uses fax machines. It's like your doctor's offices, hospitals, government agencies, right? Maybe a yeah. few others, but um, I think um, some of uh, what is happening in space is going to require um, government to kind of improve some processes. One of the um, interesting regulation challenges is with all the stuff going into orbit and going into space in general, you wind up with a debris problem. Where do you see hopeful signs there? Because it, it's bad for everyone, right? It's bad for people who want to launch now because they will be restricted on what they can put up, but also people who are already up there, like don't ram stuff into our satellites. Yeah, I mean, pretty much anything moving up there could be a kinetic weapon in in space. So um, to unpack there, I think one on the Earth side, um, a personal belief would be great to see a global um, anti-satellite weapons ban, um, whether that's from, uh, you know, missiles launched from aircraft, or, um, or you know, space to space. So just further trying to at least give at least maybe optically the appearance appearance that, hey, the world is against weaponization of space or kind of tactical warfare against satellites. Um, you, things that still need to be decided in terms of cleaning up space junk is, you know, you have nascent efforts some allege that they are commercial on, on, on ways, on different methods to clean out space junk. I don't think it's going to be a one size fits all. But even if you find a few things that work, you then have to convince that owner um, of that spacecraft that even though it's inactive and maybe even, uh, you know, inert, 
why you're going to let this third, you know, this third party come and maybe deorbit it, recycle it, use it, because you might have some that say, hey, there's proprietary technology, we don't want you to see it. There could be a variety of reasons. So I think there's gonna have to be some um, uh, negotiation there on how, how we're gonna cross. And that's interesting too, because it raises the question of who has authority in space. Um, who would be involved in that kind of discussion? Well, you know, you'll, you know, there's there's discussions at a UN level, but they're not really, you know, the UN doesn't really, they're not an enforcement agency. So what I come back to is locks are for honest people. <laughs> and I think we're just going to have to find a way, I think, either in between parties, it's maybe it's going to just start with company to company, NASA to ESA, NASA to JAXA, or it's going to maybe have to start literally organization to organizational level before it gets to something that seems more global. Well, and probably, unfortunately, it will come up with somebody's expensive satellite gets wiped out by somebody. Yeah. Else. I mean, at some point, maybe soon, I could envision seeing sort of a, an international, like kind of starts as a consortium, like as a conference, and then become some sort of um, trade group to kind of like, you know, that they'll study the problem, they'll propose solutions, they'll want the government to pay for it, they'll be, you know, they'll gladly, you know, commercial sector will gladly have like the solution for it. Um, so I think that's my guess on how we might start to see along with, you know, potential accident that will um, accelerate some of the yeah, maybe uh, all it'll that. take is a near miss, but we keep having near misses, right? The the yeah, how many near misses can on you? the space space station, the International Space Station got punctured, right? Yeah, like how many near misses are you going to have until it's like it's yeah, that's not a near miss? It's a it's a impact, it's an actual collision. Yeah, yeah, uh, near disaster, I guess, is the correct term in that case because if that had been through somebody's helmet or something like that, yeah, um, so you hear doomsday scenarios about once you have, it's almost like nuclear fission, right? It's fine in, in low density, you know, it's just like a Geiger counter going off, but when you have enough density, it becomes like a nuclear explosion. And the same sort of that metaphor applies to what happens when two satellites collide, they distribute so much debris that it can, it can hit so many other satellites until you get a chain reaction. I think, is it called Kessler effect? Is that? The Ke uh, is it a Ke Kepler? Kepler? Wait, uh Maybe the Kepler effect, and I'm forgetting. We can maybe fact check that. But okay. yes, there's there's a syndrome. There's a sort of a syndrome. syndrome. You gotta have yeah. you gotta have a syndrome, even up in space. I mean, look, you've got your child's. Um, you know, it's always great when you have like your child's uh, Legos. They've built their truck there, but they don't want to keep it there together that long. Inevitably, they're going to take it apart, and there's a million little pieces scattered around. And you think you got them all, and a couple months later, you go, "Ouch! You stepped on something." <laughs> So we'll call it the Lego syndrome. I like it. Yeah. But you're yeah. not you're not alarmed that like to me that sounds like an unlikely scenario. It's sort of the doomsday scenario. Yeah, I mean that's probably extreme, but I think it's worth thinking about things at at the um at the full range of the scale that we're able to envision, even if we're gonna miss some some areas in between and maybe even um but yeah, maybe that's gonna be the very worst, maybe highly unlikely to happen. Um, but I think it's in general, our species needs to do just better job of being proactive and yeah. planning. Um, 
I mean, we're kind of dealing, when we look at like, you know, spaceship Earth, um, and, and, you know, there were all these things that they said that were like, you know, these different studies, Club of Rome, and they, they thought it was crazy in the 70s and 80s and 90s. For many years, these, these groups were decried, and now they're going, ah, a lot of that's all true. Maybe yeah. we should do a better job of listening to, um, to our scientists and, and those who are, who are experts in a, in a, in a specific area. Um, well, I agree. And then, of course, that's one of the things as well in the book that you really emphasize is the big eye in the sky is, is important to us having a, a fact-based discussion on what's happening on the Earth. Can you, do you want to talk about that? Like you get yeah. into the environment and crop yields and that sort of um, thing? So, you know, space, you know, um, space is difficult. So we, I don't think we have to do everything in space. It's like, why do we, you know, we, we have, um, uh, we have airplanes sometimes, or we or I'll maybe start on the ground. You maybe have someone who could maybe works for the city and they're walking down blocks and they're looking for overusage of water. They're counting lawns. Maybe they're estimating pools. Um, you could go up and use a drone with that, easy, but it only covers a certain amount of territory. You've got battery issues. You can use an airplane or helicopter. That has its own uh, limitations, but certainly good when you're needing some regional things and something maybe just kind of quick and dirty. Um, and then you go up to higher altitude platforms and eventually out into space, and you get this really unique vantage point. And it's not just putting essentially telescopes um, to look down on the ground, you can put other suites of sensors, you know, you can look at the emissions um, from power plants, um, you can look at um, the weather, you can even look at radio frequencies, you know, how, um, you know, some areas are noisier than others. There's many different ways we can sort of listen to and observe the earth for, you know, commercial, financial uh, benefits, um, social planning, um, migratory um the the list is numerous and before the assets were very expensive you know you're putting up a large satellite several hundred million dollars um you have to but now with these smaller satellites that can be um it all depends on on, on like how much you're putting on there but let's just say they're they're not you know you can get a um, a constellation sat a constellation of satellites, a group of them for maybe under $100 million, you know, calling them single digit millions, sometimes hundreds of thousands each. It just, again, depends on what you're loading those uh, satellites up with, with high performance and high capability, maybe not as high as a dedicated one in a geosynchronous orbit, but still very high performance. So, you know, we're now, you know, dealing with these issues like how to feed the planet, how do we, um, uh, you know, dealing with pollution mitigation issues, there, you know, forest fires, the list is numerous, but you can use these sensors um, to inform our decision making. And just the raw data is not necessarily helpful. Um, this is where you bring in your um, AI and, and your other complementary computer technology, software technologies that can um, help provide an assistant to the analytics that's going on so you can have better insights to, to whatever you're, you're observing. Um, I just spent some time in the Pacific Northwest and, and, and you know, every issue on the plant has its own kind of regional things they're dealing with. And we, there were some surrounding areas dealing with fires and, and I was expecting the smoke to kind of blow into where we were staying, but they actually ended up blowing all the way to the east coast of north america and they were dealing with you know smoke 
all the way from the west coast of North America. So we're all interlinked and using uh, satellite assets could better, you know, better help, you know, you know, where the smoke particulates are going, what are they affecting? And you alluded to like farming, um, you know, um, if we can improve how we're using, you know, better management of, of the land and you can use things like hyperspectral data where you're able to see another um, other parts of the uh, the light spectrum so you can look for you know it's like disease and proper water usage so we can really kind of i guess better fine tune the human activities that currently work or some of them don't work or don't work super well just better fine tune things how exciting would it be i imagine there's already efforts underway to to see the the forest fire right when it starts yeah, there's there was um, there was a project a few years ago that my friend Rex Reitenauer was a part of that called FireSat, and it was just too soon. They wanted to put some satellites up to look for uh, fires just as they started, and it was a little too soon. Um, I think maybe there's a, a maybe a reemergence of a project like that, maybe different, totally different group. But um, yeah, I could see that where you could just see um, right where you know right where the fire starts. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about what I'll call the big eye in the sky. There's also the big antenna in the sky, right? The, the, the big relay. So we have TV satellites and, and communication satellites. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Starlink, which is a project by SpaceX. I think it's uh, an interesting example because it's sort of the, the extreme example of a constellation. I think they're aiming for over 40,000 satellites. Can you talk about the pros and cons of that and how that impacts space debris? Well, uh, I mean, we've never done that many satellites. I mean, no one organization's ever put that many satellites, and that's more satellites than we have ever launched. Yeah. So yeah. It, it breaks a lot of records. But the promise of Starlink is that it will be able to deliver um, kind of broadband access to the entire planet, which is great be you know there's a lot of positives there because we don't yet much of the planet still doesn't have sat, uh, internet access there's still remote areas and plenty you know western countries that have spotty internet uh, so that would be you know you could imagine um especially places where um, you're dealing with issues of poverty um when you start being able to bring in things like um, remote better remote access to remote telemedicine and education that can potentially be a game changer for that region or country. Um, you know, the challenges around, you know, satellites colliding or becoming space junk. I mean, you know, I know SpaceX, um, I mean, they're, they're very cognizant of, of that, of those pressures. And they're even putting, um, people are concerned about night, uh, them causing uh, pollution in the skies, being able to affect astronomers' visibility of, and they've been basically building these sunshades on the um, satellites. Now, I don't really know the total, um, what's, what SpaceX plans to do in terms of replacements of satellites or as they become, uh, you know, they need to replace them with just newer satellites. You know, there's some concern that some of the materials um, in the satellites, if you started you know, bringing these satellites back and deep, uh, burning them up, could cause some um, uh, potential ozone issues with the ozone layer that should be addressed. Um, I'm not quite sure how they, are they gonna have to build satellites in a different material? I'm, I'm not sure, but I, but it definitely should be looked at and addressed. 
Yeah, there are um, a couple of aspects to the to the low orbit that are interesting, right? One is that you don't wind up with forever debris. It'll come down quicker. And then the other is the 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 distance to the satellite is lower. So your latency, the delay in a signal. You you know you know the old news reports are like uh so tell us about the weather and there's that three beat count yeah. while you're waiting for a response. You don't get that with this, do you? Well, I don't know how many milliseconds the delay will be. You're still dealing with the speed of light, but yeah. it'll be um uh I play music and I was I was thinking, oh man, maybe it'll be great to be able to do like, you know, um, co-located um, uh, music production, which has been very elusive. And there are only a few universities, I think like North America, all tied into this thing called the Internet 2, and they're using like, you know, fiber optic. And there's little tight, I mean, almost unnoticeable. So you can do rhythmic types of music, but you're not going to be able to do that with Starlink, unfortunately. It's no. still a little too long. So I've been curious about it. But it'll be, it, it, it could be a, a game changer for, you know, whether you're, on an island, a mountain. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope it proceeds. Yeah, it continues to proceed. For the last two years, I don't. I, I imagine you've been able to work from home for the majority of the last two years. Yes, uh, and I have as well. And 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 that's that's revolutionary. I mean, if it weren't for the unfortunate circumstances we find ourselves in, a lot of people wouldn't even know they could work from home. But now it's getting to the point where you can work from anywhere. I mean, you just if you have a, access to a Starlink station, you're you're in business. Yeah, um, one of my colleagues got an early Starlink. He's using it. Um, I think he's using it in New Hampshire. They have a little mountain place, and it's, it works. He says it's working reasonably well. Um, but like human, you know, just humans move. We're not going to be able to prevent us from moving around. But I think things like the pre-pandemic ways of commuting is just such a inefficient use of time. And of course, there's some things that just need to be done in a group of people, but do people need to spend five, you know, four or five or six days a week kind of meeting all together? I'm not so sure about that. Um, you know, I, of course it's industry dependent and all very dependent, but I think there's many uh, industries where we can, we can change the work norms. Yeah, for sure. Um, what do you see any parallels between the rapid increase of activity in space and the dot-com boom like is there is there a reckoning coming where there's so much activity that there has to be a bit of a bust i've thought about that i'm not sure um i think the maybe some of the differences is that in the first internet dot-com some of the companies had they had only a, it was like a vague business plan and no idea how they were going to produce revenue. It was like, okay, I have app, I'm, you know, I have grapefruit.com. I don't know what we're going to do, but you know, we love grapefruit, you know, and people said, wow, it had.com. They'd go public, you know, you know, first day of trade, half billion dollars of valuation at the time, which was, you know, a lot, or maybe a billion and, but real, no great idea on like how they're going to keep the lights on. Right. Right. I think most space companies, even the ones that are dealing with new markets, have at least a better idea. And their investors are somewhat cautious. You know, most investors are, you know, they're they're gonna they tend to gonna ask their their entrepreneurs and the founders to meet milestones before they re-up and, and, and invest more. It does surprise me a little bit. I mean, other than SpaceX, which is a real media darling. I don't think too many day traders are necessarily aware of the space industry. They're more likely to invest in a in a storefront video game 
retail outlet than they are in space. So maybe we're we're it's early days yet, and the boom hasn't really started. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, people are playing financial arbitrage, and it's not so much they care about GameStop. The game, it's really just more about what little slice they're going to make off of some type of financial transaction. Yeah. They're not really looking at the fundamentals. Um, so how could one invest in space? Because I know right now SpaceX is privately traded, right? Privately held, excuse me. Yeah, and there's, there's, you know, um, I mean, there are ways to get in on like those sort of early investment, but it's very, I mean, I just saw one last week that was like a, uh, up to $20 million opportunity to invest in SpaceX through like a kind of a secondary fund. But the, I think they're, the, the current price per share, it's, it's eye-opening. It's, <laughs> you know, so I think if you were, one was a, uh, you know, a Main Street investor and they're looking just a little, have a little call this throwaway money, they can lose it, you know, not making, if it were me, not making investments advice, but just uh, this, just anecdotal. Look at some of the exchange, the um, exchange traded funds out there, because they hold a broad range of companies, and some of them will be aerospace focused, not just space focused, and uh, and and that is uh, they're they're generally affordable per share. They're diversified. Um, is something that would be a way to kind of start getting into. And we're, we're starting to see, and this is, I think, what's going to be exciting is, um, you know, some of these other, there's other groups like the SPAC methods of going mm -hmm. public. So there's, there's, there, there space companies of which space is interesting. There's, there's lots of companies that are trying to find new ways to, um, get themselves funded. Right. You know, um, well, Let's talk about your role in the industry a little bit. You're the founder of a venture called Space Advisors. What 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 role does that company play? So Space Advisors um, was set up to be um, an advisory company for a few select startups, but also organizations that are looking to seek to create a strategy um, utilizing space or for space. Um, because you can imagine there's lots of companies that might be saying, okay, we, 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 we know who Elon Musk, Richard Branson, but Jeff Bezos are, they're all interested in space, but how does this affect us? Does this affect us? So we're interested in facilitating, helping companies understand how they can both participate and how they can be doing better planning uh, for this coming, or this, it's sort of like this, the space revolution is happening. We just don't know it, or most right. of us just don't know it. Right. And I say that politely. I, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to like put down people like insiders, outsiders. It's it's just, um, it's a bit like the dot com. Everybody said, okay, I can have a website. I can have a business card. People understand satellites are necessary. I can, I, I, you know, banking transactions. But really, how else is it going to affect me? And they don't realize that there's many uh, visible, invisible ways daily that um, you know benefits of space, whether it's um, things that were done through like tech transfer, they were developed, um, you know, through, you know, pub public space agencies and were spun off, or that the innovations that the private sector is making, and it's not just going to be about launching satellites, I think we're going to be seeing innovations around, uh, eventually around uh, the, in the material sciences area, life sciences, manufacturing, um, 
and that, that those will have direct uh, benefits for us here on Earth. Yeah, that is an exciting thread. Um, and that is that if you can do something in space, it, it's inevitably a better way than you would do it on Earth. Like you really have to put your thinking cap on to get something done at all in space. And once you figure out that method, it could be very useful on Earth. And that's one of the arguments in favor of NASA. I, I forget the exact figure, but I think you were saying something along the lines of, you know, there's X many dollars of, of uh, economic activity produced by an investment in NASA, for example. Yeah, well, that's range. That's a very, you know, there's been a few studies done over, over the years and um, and that's it's it's tricky. How do they quantify that? And there's like a range. It's like three to fourteen dollars, but the but the takeaway is not the it's not that specific range. It's that there was a positive number that was given back. It's it wasn't that that NASA doesn't put the U.S. taxpayer in the red. It actually gives back. And then there's the ancillary benefits that are you know countless. So let's talk about what do you see the role for, for national space agencies like NASA now that space has drawn the attention of entrepreneurs? It's a commercial venture a lot of the time. What, what role should NASA play? I think NASA can be, do more ex, you know, uh, advanced technology development, exploration. Um, there's things like deep, deep space missions, uh, interplanetary missions with robots. That, that groups like JPL lead that they do, um, they're, they're practically peerless. They're, I mean, they're that outstanding. They continue to do that, you know, focus on the really early, um, you know, technology advancement and development um, and exploration and, cont and, and continue to become a, uh, um, in terms of things like commercial crew and the space station continue to kind of work in this transitory role of being a customer to some of these people. I mean, NASA, um, you know, it's had astronauts successfully fly now on, uh, on us made commercial, um, uh, uh, spaceships, SpaceX. And this isn't all that new. I mean, like you used to see, I mean, great. Um, you look at some of these older photographs, and you'd see people in their bunny suits or their white suits in the clean rooms. And there were always corporate logos over at Rockwell or Boeing, Boeing or whatever company. Yeah. So the corporate sector has always been of service. There were just, there was just a, it was a kind of an elite club. Now the club has kind of gotten a little larger and there's new entrants. Yeah. And the, and the private companies are playing much more of an, almost like an OEM role, like in the manufacturer yeah. of cars. They're building the whole shebang, whereas before they were building just subsystems. Um, you know what? You broke up there, Tim. Could you repeat oh, that question? I'm sorry. I, I was just saying that. Um, am I okay now? Yes. Uh, I was just saying that that one of the differences between the Apollo era, for example, and what we see today, in what you call space 2.0, it's this new commercialization of space is in the Apollo era, they were all subcontractors. They weren't integrators, like, like a car manufacturer, an OEM builds the whole car um, as a private enterprise. Now you're seeing that with SpaceX and companies like that, they're coming out with the whole, the whole mission almost. Yeah, yeah. It's a big change. Um, but that does raise a question. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you saw this 
tweet this uh, on Twitter from Dan Rather, who said the space race of the 1960s was fueled by American taxpayers. This space race is fueled by non-taxpayers. Did you see that Twitter? No, no, non-taxpayers. So what, what, he's, what he's picking on there is this idea that people are objecting this billionaire space race. Um, do you do you share that concern? Um, I think, okay, there's, there's a few things to address here is that um, yes, some high profile, high net worth people do silly things like all of us. They say things in public things that they probably realize it was kind of dumb. They can sometimes be a little tone deaf. They can be arrogant. They can spend money on really foolish things. But the fact that there are a few individuals that are investing in things that look like science fiction is impressive. There's plenty of other, There's there's been plenty of other high network people. There were people before Elon Musk who could have tried to do a SpaceX, but the time wasn't right. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you had uh, Beal from Beal Bank who, who, who basically tried doing something kind of like SpaceX before, and then NASA wouldn't work with him. The timing wasn't right. So he stopped investing in it, and Elon even purchased some of those assets from, from Jeff Beal. Um, why don't people give the guy, and I can't think of his name, the chairman or the family that owns all those luxury brands in France, like Louis Vuitton? You know, he's worth, his family's worth like a couple hundred billion US dollars. I don't know what his, I'm sure he had, you know, gives money to some charities or whatever, but he's not, be, you know, you know, the, the media selectively picks on the people right now that are focused on space because they somehow are a little jealous. So what if Branson and Bezos wanted to be one of the first on something that they helped fund? I mean, hey, it's their butt. They could have been killed on it but they probably had a pretty good assurance that they were likely to survive. I don't think they would have actually gone on those flights is my personal assessment. Um, I think we need more high net worth people investing in, 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 in science activities. And some will say, well, you know, Virgin or, or Blue Origin is not really doing a lot of science yet. Well, in fact, they have actually been taking some payloads um, Blue Origin had been flying scientific payloads um, on their uh, uncrewed flights um, for some time. So there is, um, you know, the, the people are just seeing the short-term joyride. Mm-hmm. They're actually not seeing what the long-term vision. And actually, if they're even just taking a joyride, if we break down that word, a joyride means you're taking a ride to have fun and joy. I would rather be having people be in more joy than like more pain. So I, I think, you know, as much as initially the this part of the space race might be most afforded by those who are going to either grant people who can't afford the tickets to fly or the people who can afford to write the checks, but that is eventually going to open up as the prices continue to come down. The goal is not just to keep this as a, uh, a small exclusive club. Going back to, um, and again, I'm just trying to state different points. It's, it's not necessarily in pure defense of any one person, but I know, uh, you know, Bezos back in 1982, he was uh, graduating from his high school and he was a valedictorian in his speech. He was talking about wanting to um, be in, do activities related to space. He had read um, Jerry O'Neill's The High Frontier, excellent book, which is also, there's a documentary um, about uh, the late Jerry O'Neill's life. 
And Jerry O'Neill basically saw that we could build these large structures in space, um, have, he envisioned thousands of people living, you, you know, and these, these, um, these stations would have artificial gravity. He also is a proponent of using um, solar energy to power those space stations. And we could say that probably Bezos and many hundreds, if not thousands of other people who are in or around the space industry have been have been directly um, influenced by Professor uh, Jared K. O'Neill's vision. And so if, if people like Dan rather want to understand further, you know, get to the roots and really, you know, read or understand Gerard K. O'Neill's life and you will understand what is kind of driving you know, people. And maybe in Elon, one of the big drivers for him was the Foundation book series. Mm -hmm. And um, a project I was part of called, or that I'm part of called the Arc Mission Foundation, we actually um, took a disc of that uh, book series and we put it on a, a quartz disc and we put it inside uh, Elon Musk's Tesla Roadster that's now orbiting the sun. Oh, that's that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. That, that's quite a story too, isn't it? The yeah. test payload for for the falcon heavy right yeah 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 we were there was a few kind of easter eggs we were one of the easter eggs um on that that's flight. awesome yeah. um well tell me more about that how, how did that project come to be um so our commission foundation was kind of the brainchild of uh, my colleague nova spivak um, he's a prolific inventor and, and serial entrepreneur and he had been kind of looking at for a number of years of what the current state of um data storage is. And our civilization, things are very ephemeral and civilizations only tend to last a you know, few hundred years max. They tend to not last very long time. And you and we're still very impervious to, you know, floods and fires that, um, you know, just about every year, a few libraries somewhere burn down. Mm -hmm. um, and he, it goes back to he had a very intense dream as a child about kind of like a sort of an end of civilization dream. And he's kind of carried that dream with him most of his life that he felt he needed to start something to help kind of preserve human knowledge and culture. And that became the Arc Mission Foundation. We've flown, um, so, so we, we've kind of scouted various technologies and these are, these are technologies that will last uh, not thousands of years, but billions of years. Um, and we're having um, so the quartz uh, the quartz disc technology was developed out of a university in um, in the United Kingdom, and um, you can get several hundred terabytes and just uh, I'm forgetting the exact just a, you know under under fifty grams. I mean it's really small these these discs. The challenge though still is that to read or play back that disc you need the entire lab. So in that way, it was, you know, if somebody were to go out to Elon's Tesla Roadster and go in the glove compartment and get it, you'd have to have the lab at this point sure. to be able to read the disc. Maybe but throw a very, manual in the glove box. With yeah, it. but it'll last 10 plus billion years, yeah. the, the quartz. Um, uh, a more affordable technology that we're using a little more at scale at this moment is called NanoFiche. It's a, it's a nickel-based technology, uses the metal nickel. And we can include both um, analog and digital data. And we're using nanolithography to actually etch into the nickel metal. And you can see um, in terms of the analog uh, data with just a, a regular microscope, you can actually see with your own eye on there. Yeah. So we put um, uh, a nickel disc of about 
30 to 35, 30-ish million pages of data onto the Israeli lander, the Space IL, um, that's the brace sheet, and that's on the moon right now um, of a vast variety of, of human um, knowledge and culture. Um, so we're, you know, we've got a number of other missions planned. We've done some Earth missions um, to so the um, the idea is, uh, and what we're actually doing is is a, a a robust and resilient and scalable way to start backing up uh, Earth civilization. So imagine you do the math and you come up with the perfect location in the solar system to put this backup of everything we already know, and you find that there's one from a previous civilization already there. That's basically space two thousand and one. Yeah, That's, but we think we need to have multiple ones. We need yeah. they need to be at Lagrange points, different. Uh, they need to be in both kind of obvious and non-obvious spots. And the non-obvious ones would be, you know, in case there is a place in the future when you know maybe um, the authorities regimes don't want access to that. So we want to, you know, you make sure um, that this is, you know, safeguard against nature and humans. <laughs> Amazing. Well, well, speaking of humans, um, one of the things that happens when you commercialize something is eventually you militarize it too. Um, so what is the role of the new US military branch Space Force? And what does this suggest for militarization of space coming to us? Well, I had always been on the side that in my initial thinking is that we should have had um, that at least the U.S. should have stood up something that looked more like a Coast Guard model, that maybe there could still be aspects of it that would look like that. But, you know, the fact is, is that the U.S. has a lot of assets in space, both, not all of them are, you know, the, the civilian, military, non-military, and Space Force's job is really going to be to protect that. It's going to also start, you know, I think monitoring, you know, the space orbit, dealing, uh, learning how to um, better deal with the orbital debris issue. Um, so I think, you know, they're not initially putting uh, men and women in astronaut suits and having flying around up there with guns. That's that's not happening. Not anytime soon. That's not realistic. What's more likely happen is that they're going to be just charge and task in dealing with those in space at the assets and how do they deal with the threats now that comes full circle going you know what is defense in a in a space regime if you know let's just say you know you've got your satellite there and you see someone might crash in you um you know moving it away is a fine thing but you know how can you tell whether that was an accident or that was an intentional intentionally made to maneuver the satellite to collide with the other one so um and i don't know if the the space force is is probably the group that's going to be tasked to kind of like coming up with those rules um but they're going to be on the kind of the first line there so circling back to your role as an advisor um where do you see the low-hanging fruit for entrepreneurs in terms of getting involved in space? And also, where do you see the greatest opportunities for, let's say you're 25 years old or 20 years old and you want to take a, get a degree and you want to get into space? What are the careers looking like? Gosh. Um, so I, I would say to an you know, somebody who's currently an entrepreneur or, or maybe just curious, first I, I say, and I, if, look in your own backyard. 
And when by that means it could be geographic in terms of what space activity is going on in your own city or area or town, wherever you're at, or university. And what are you currently involved with? Let's say you're involved with, um, you know, insurance, you're in the insurance business. Look at, okay, how does the space industry work with the insurance business? And they do, but are, and then you say, if you have some expertise or insider knowledge, maybe there's some other things going, hmm, is gonna be a way to start, you know, covering, you know, an extended life insurance policy for human participants flying. You know, there's, there's lots of extensions that one can maybe make. So I would say, try to just develop some analogs, even if it's just a thought exercise. Then um, if you do have an, or if one has an idea that they think this would be cool to create or commercialize, do some development on it, and not necessarily in product development, but in terms of user or customer development, mm -hmm. so that you don't invest a whole lot of time into something that maybe someone currently won't necessarily use or care about or pay for. So spend some energy figuring out who is who is the customer. Um, in terms of one who is a, a student, um, you know, you can, you know, there's lots of lists out there on like these future, you know, the jobs of the future, jobs of space. Remember Wired Magazine used to always print, I love that part. It was always at the last, or no, it wasn't, it was it Archaeology of the Future, I think is what it was. They always had this page at the very back of the magazine about like, oh. it was sort of future archaeology that didn't quite exist. And um, you can just imagine, you know, if you're interested in, in human space experience, space flights, you know, what types of, um, you know, find out what, you know, go back to what interests you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think you don't know what you want to do, you want to be in space and you're, you like engineering, well, go into engineering. You don't have to be an aerospace engineer. You can go in any, pretty much any branch of engineering could have a, have a relevance to space. You're going to get some of the fundamentals mm -hmm. and then it's, you know, you're going to go eventually train in something else if you're in some type of business or other areas. So, uh, I wouldn't stress too much about that. But for those who maybe are not necessarily um, inclined who want to go to like an engineering school, um, you know, that's where you can, you know, start using, I'll call it some of the creative side and thinking about like, you know, creating things that you're going to be, you know, you, you know, creating something that's using the infrastructure and tools and pieces that are being set up. Um, it's not like, I mean, look at all the, I mean, how many influ, you know, these YouTubers or Instagram people are out there. Most of, I'm not, okay, I'm going to make a, a, let me, let me say this politely. They did not build the technology they are using, sure. but they are very good, but they have done an excellent job. There are individuals, sometimes very young who have made a lot of wealth for themselves sometimes more wealth than the people who are maybe on the front lines who are working a salary job building one of these devices. And sure, they might've done okay, but but there are then individuals who go, I know how to take this tool and really amplify it for my own use. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. I am, I'm um, very impressed with his, um, uh, I was just watching his um, tour of uh, Starport. Star, yeah, Star Starbase. Starbase, excuse me. Yeah, I, I was impressed too, and that that was why I was bringing it up because here's a guy who interested in space, sharing that interest with an audience, and and making a living out of it, and and actually meeting Elon Musk directly. I know you've met Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. um, what were the circumstances of that? 
Um, I think there was um, two different small tours. One was at the very first, um, their their first original location in Manhattan Beach, or it was near or El Segundo, excuse me, which is next to Manhattan Beach, um, which is so small. I was like, and what they were building, it, I was like, uh, and then and then at the at the Hawthorne location, and yeah, and it was having like, it was pretty cool. Elon giving the tour. <laughs> You know, oh, he amazing. doesn't have time to do that these days. I don't blame him. Uh, um, and then my colleague met him to deliver the disc. Um, oh, good. Yeah. That's great. Sneaker net. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, so NASA is planning missions to the moon. How does that differ from the Apollo program? Uh, like, so Artemis, uh, um, so Artemis is, you know, our plan to go back and kind of stay. I mean, we don't have necessarily a base. There's a lot of things that they still haven't, you know, put on that roadmap uh, publicly in terms of like, you know, a permanent base, but it's kind of going back and more, you know, initially Apollo was about putting a flag on the moon flags, they call flags and footprints. Artemis is really the early missions to, um, going back long-term and uh, helping um, whether it's nation states or businesses are going to start to use the resources of the moon to develop things that will need to migrate out in the solar system, fuel, oxygen, water, these sorts of things that we can, um, and maybe building materials. Um, Cause I imagine we're, you know, when we build some bases, we're probably not going to bring, you won't want to bring everything from earth. You'll want to use the, the resources from the land. And that's, um, and you know, it's debatable on what intact and tactically, which methods they will use in terms of structures. Are they going to go underground and tunnel? Are they going to have domes that, you know, that part doesn't matter. That's, that's kind of like for the, the, the real geeks to, to geek out on that. And that's great. But the, the more important thing is that we are going back in that the moon is going to be a both a playground by play use experimentation training learning but we'll also be able to um there's economic activity we'll be able to do that will benefit um benefit us too so i want to keep looking at that moon mission and the the exciting prospect of a moon base but you made me think of the International Space Station because there are parallels there, right? It's, it's the construction of a permanent habitat in, in the first case in orbit and then this one on the moon. But there's also some interesting things about the ISS that they may or may not duplicate um, in, in a lunar uh, presence. So for example, the fact that it was international at all, do you anticipate the Artemis program resulting in an international presence or would it, would it be entirely US? I'm, I'm still not, I'm still not sure. Um, I think it was a, it was a beautiful thing that we were able to get ISS together under an international um, group, even though very expensive, still very bureaucratic. Um, it's getting, it's aging, um, but you know, it shows that humans can work together you know, despite like the differences between the US and Russians, we have them working together every day on, on the space station. Um, so I think that's like, a, it's like a powerful form of diplomacy. Um, I know with like the Lunar Gateway, you were alluding to earlier about this kind of space station um, off the moon. Um, it would not be crewed year round. 
or all the, you know, it would be periodically. And there's a lot of debate on whether it's necessary. Some are saying, just go direct to the moon. Why do you need to go to like a space station, then go to the moon to come back and then leave that space station dark and vacant? I am not, my personal take is I'm, I'm not as bullish on the gateway. Mm-hmm. There might be some good reasons, but I don't think there are enough rather than just focusing on, hey, let's just work on getting back to the moon and that infrastructure on the moon. Yeah. And and what you were raising earlier, the exciting prospect, everything we put in orbit around the earth anyway, has to be from the, like, or with the current approach, it's launched from the earth and therefore it's all material from earth. When you're on the moon, it's different. There is local material, maybe a barren, you know, moon, but there's still metals and potentially even water there that we could use. And it it creates a circumstance where we're starting to build for for the first time with stuff that's elsewhere, that stuff that's off earth. Yeah. And for those who don't know, the moon was peppered with um, meteorites hitting him for billions of years. And that's why they have found near the, towards the surface levels, Mm. higher amounts of metals because of those impacts. So we, it's kind of like, it's this nice gift you're getting from the universe going metals and deposits from other places that are saying, Hey, we're just going to, we're going to give you a few here on, on, on the moon. Yeah, that that's incredible. So you wouldn't have to necessarily dig that deep to get the materials you need to Apparently create some not. form of industry there. Huh. Yeah, that's correct. I thought of that. Um, so, um, we talked about the big eye in the sky and the big, what I'll call antenna in the sky. Let's talk a little bit about the big brain in the sky, because you've already touched on the, the importance of space as a sort of backup location for data. But I also wonder if it'll be a popular or, or useful place to do data storage and data processing, because you've got all that solar power for free and no impact beyond the initial launch in terms of environmental damage. Do you see that as a growing thing? Yeah, I've heard of some uh, serious interest in terms of uh, um, trying to develop dedicated processing, uh, computer processor technology, um, even how to one day, we can't do this yet, eventually manufacture um, the, the, the chips and computers in space, having dedicated storage, call it true cold storage, whether it's for security or, uh, you know, or, you know, um, trying to take advantage of some of the thermal conditions because space, you know, you could have a spacecraft on one side where the sun's hitting, it's really hot and the other side's really cold. So space has those extremes to, to kind of dance with. Um, I think the moon might be also an interesting, um, another kind of call it, more secure um, zone to be able to to work in. Um, and I kind of wonder, and I think it will further out, not related to your question is, are we eventually going to have zoning laws? <laughs> yeah. Or, or how, you know, first of all, maybe not laws, but just how do you zone for the moon? Like, you know, and here on Earth, you could say, ah, oh, this area is for industrial or this is, you know, light industrial. You know, how does that work where we know under the, the current outer space the current treaties have not kept up with what's happening. And it's a lot of discussion that needs to be um, revised and, and, and made more um, relevant for um, today. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, 
do you see any murmurs of investing in uh, capacity to process data in space for, for cryptocurrency mining? Because, you know, the, the big complaint is it uses so much electricity, right? Yeah, I mean, if, you know, there were some early projects around storing some Bitcoin in space and, and saving keys um, in terms of the processing ones. I don't know. I mean, your guess is probably as good as mine. I mean, I, I'm sure there are, there's, um, I, I think where we'll get to, my, my guesstimate where we'll get to before that's necessary is that we're going to, uh, uh, for blockchain, there's, you know, for those who, who hear about like the environmental concerns around Bitcoin because it uses this proof of work, a bunch of computers crunching numbers, but there's this also this alternative method that Bitcoin doesn't use, but some other cryptocurrencies or newer ones are starting to use called a proof of stake. And I think we'll, we're more likely going to start seeing the currencies and, and, and tools shift to using more proof of stake and things where there's less, they're less energy intensive. I mean, they'll have their own in intensive, you know, they'll use different types of resources in terms of electricity costs. They're prop, um, I think that we are going to more quickly transition away from that before we have to decide putting this like large computer server farm in the sky just to mine Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting uh, perspective. I mean, I know I'm drifting us off topic a little bit. We're talking about space, but of course, you can't talk about space without getting in the community of people who think about things like blockchain and things like that as well. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds because that if, if proof of stake becomes the future, it, I think it calls into question the future of Bitcoin, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it, would, it would call for a completely different uh, token. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, don't invest your life savings in Bitcoin anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you t when we were talking about the use of uh, satellites for data storage and, and data um, processing, you touched on the sort of the next uh, exciting future for space, and that is manufacturing in space. Um, and you talked about some of the exciting characteristics, like you got, you got easy access to hot, super hot and super cold. You got access to electricity. You've also got microgravity. What are some of the potentials that come from creating things in, in microgravity or the absence of the sensation of gravity? Yeah, so they, they think that the absence of gravity, that into itself can create new stressors that you could use um, on how, you know, liquids flow, materials um, form, how you can construct things rather than, you know, if you're building it up layer by layers. Um, there's a lot of interest around building, uh, I guess, maybe not building, growing organs, um, biological organs. And there's still some difficulties, you know, on Earth with that. And I guess you could, if, you know, if you're in a zero gravity environment, you could potentially more easily construct that, whether you're you know, printing that layer by layer or growing the cells. Um, I find it really, I think it's going to be a really fascinating area because I think once we have a few more kernels of like a breakthrough of like what the possibility is in one area, it doesn't matter what it is, then many other resources will want to be invested in that area because they say, gosh, if it worked for this, mm -hmm. um, but it's still, it's still relatively early. I mean, although the pharmaceutical industry has for many years taken experiments, but they've been onesies or twosies things, you know, we haven't really had that breakthrough yet, you know, the treatment or cure. Um, 
uh, yet. But I think, I mean, that would be a beneficial one. But I think in the, on the material side, like how can you, you know, can you make a, you know, a silicon chip, you know, in a better, more efficient way? Can we, you know, use, they use a lot of water. My understanding, they use a lot of water, mm. you know, like can we, can we, you know, minimize resource or environmental impact using, you know, resources from space to make, to have these kind of fabrication places. And there's some, um, there's some funding that's starting to flow in those ways. I still, it still seems to me that they're, um, they're kind of like saying, Hey, we, we, we have this idea, but we, they don't exactly know what they're going to be in the next few years, a little bit of spaghetti at the wall because it's, it's so early. And, and this is one of the um, important roles of the ISS, the International Space Station, is it, it's a, you can have a fractional mission, like you can bring a project up there and have it done for you and then, and then bring it home in a way that you, you could never afford to have the whole infrastructure yourself. Yeah, that's right. What do you see as the future for the space station? Because some people are starting to say, and you even said it, it's showing its age. What is the future for it? Um. I think um, I imagine with some of the recent um, challenge at the space station, even the commercial developers who are planning on attaching call nodes or modules to the space station might be thinking, oh gosh, is the space station even too much of a liability? I mean, my own personal view, and this is, you know, it's, it's there's probably, it's not the most rational is that you would move this, eventually move the space station somewhere out, keep it out higher orbit. It would be like a museum because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's this amazing artifact that we've built. We already splashed down the mirror. I think that was a mistake. Um, it's it's and an Skylab too. Skylab too. I mean, these yeah. are amazing, uh, amazing pieces of human ingenuity, and it's like I don't know, like blowing up a pyramid. Yeah. So granted, it takes a lot of resources to keep it up there, but I would love to find a way to preserve aspects of you know of it. Uh, a module something yeah. um but you know i think we're more likely to have you know the com a few commercial groups maybe several attached nodes to the space station eventually they'll become free flyers um and nasa will become kind of a tenant of some of the commercial use of the uh, on terms of an other other um uh, lower earth orbiting you know space stations so you and I may need to speculate on this a little bit, but I'm curious yeah. about the, the uh, technical and, and maybe um, economic advantages of having a space station where you keep adding bits to it. So it keeps growing as opposed to bringing things to orbit and having them be separate space stations. What, what are the advantages of linking to an existing space station? Um, well, I, I think that the, from my understanding is that like say the like axiom they don't have to build up the whole space station they build out the piece that they need that is not available on the iss they can take advantage of the other infrastructure that's there and then eventually they can detach as they're building the rest of their space station but when you have um you know potentially large systems like you know the kind of spacex's you know heavy lift capabilities coming online you could um, bring up, you know, most of your space station pre pre-constructed. So there's, you know, so you so there's less of the construction space. There's probably pros and cons. There's pros and cons to both, and I guess it's going to be a case by case. Um, but as we get better with manufacturing in space with with robotics, 
um, you know, eventually some of these discussions might just be seem so trivial moot that we're having, you know, in the future, they're going to be looking back at this conversation going, well, that was moot because, you know, we, all the materials are there and we just, you know, we print things out and we, you know, you know we, we, we do all, we, we do all we need to do just, you know, in our little factory, right. our, our orbiting factory. Um, so talking about habitats in space, the, the, the sort of the, what Elon Musk is describing as the Holy Grail is a permanent civilization on Mars. Let me take your temperature on that. How optimistic are you going to are you that that will happen in our lifetime? And what do you think it will look like? In what aspect? Well, that's a fair question. I'll leave that up to you. How many people? Let's put it this way. It's 2040. How many people are living on the moon at that point? In 2040. Um, 20 years from now, I would hope that we have, I'm be generous and say two to 5,000 people. Wow. Maybe more. And the reason, and the reason I think is that because of the capabilities and launch, I think if, if um, like Starship's able to kind of like deliver the sort of mass, they say, you know, if you're getting a couple hundred metric tons up um, and you're doing this, at a rapid tempo, you can start thinking in really big structures and systems or, or actually built, not just thinking, you can actually start it, making those a reality. So let me back up a little bit because that that's actually even more, more and more optimistic than I anticipated you answering. So let me ask you this. When do we have boots on Mars the first time? Um, I think it's still going to not be till like, end of this decade at the earliest yeah I, because i, I and, and i don't think it's the issue of getting the spacecraft i don't think it's the issue of even building <laughs> infrastructure it's i think it's the the in between. <laughs> i think it's the in-between part oh. i think it's how to kind of keep people relatively safe even if it's a one-way trip um on the way to mars without you know cycle you know psychological um comfort i mean i'm a little i'm a little skeptical of like I, I don't know if i would want to be in a um a proverbial tin can for six months to a year before i got to that destination and then that destination is not hawaii <laughs> <laughs> do you yeah, see what well i said <laughs> but maybe they're not, maybe they're not recruiting us no and i think there are certain specific personality types that will want to go on that journey yeah and it and if they're able to have children and procreate it'll be those children who don't have a memory of earth as a home that's going to be the sticking point mm -hmm. because for all of us here that are live on earth we're always going to kind of miss earth and think of it as our home attachment it's going to be very difficult you know even if we had this beautiful rotating cylinder you know this and, and, and the lagrange point and we go and live there, we're still going to think of Earth as our home. Yeah, I agree. And and let's face it, we're physiologically constructed. You know, we've evolved for the conditions on Earth. It's going to be, it's, yeah. it's not going to be an easy uh, life, I don't think. Um, so what countries or regions do you think are going to surprise us by pl playing a big role in space? We, we're familiar with with 
United States and Russia and China now, what, what, where do you see the surprises coming from? I think India will continue to make progress in the space sector. I think Africa is an, int- an interesting one. There's a lot of enthusiasm and energy and um, and activity starting to happen in, in Africa. So um, uh, I, I would say um, I'm optimistic by some parts of Australia and other parts some, you know, I think they're being, they're doing the dance where between like, how much are they going to go into like the defense sector versus other areas, but they have a lot of um, legacy in mining. And I think that they could, you know, could, um, Mm. could innovate and be leaders there in terms of uh, space resources and mining because of their, the legacy there. I mean, Canada could you could probably say that in a way too, too about Canada too, because um, it has uh, long history in terms of uh, like you know experience in mining and resources. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see more coming from Canada. One, and of course, you you are uh, I appreciate you recognizing that I'm living in Canada. Uh, yeah, so thank you for that. Um, you. I, I don't know, uh, forgive me, I took this note out of your book. I don't know if it's your words or if you were quoting someone, mm-hmm. but you say space is still in its own league. The sector is vast, intricate, and fraught with market, regulatory, and technological risks. Most investors typically only want to deal with one of those risks. Space has all three. Um, do you see a future where maybe one or two of those start to start to become, we've ticked those boxes and now it's just market? issues that we need to address almost almost high probability yeah um you know i mean maybe it's they're all there but just to reduced amounts market risk technology risk regulatory risk you could see how space could still have a some of those three but they might be that that if it was like a graph they might be it would be doing a little dance you know oh this administration they want to like ratchet up they want to put some new regulations so there's more political risk or regulatory risk you know um uh mars okay we have this technology works but can we this is a new market how do we commercialize it you know i mean so yeah okay that's good so that, that's encouraging yeah, that's my answer. That- that's why it's early days, right? And that's why we're sort of saying that it's a, a trillion dollar market because there there are these pressures tamping down interest. But as they become as those pressures become relieved, I think you're gonna see yeah. that boom. And and I talk about how um and I got this um this is I mean, this is a big idea that only space can do quadrillion or quadrillions, because humanity's never done anything at that sort of scale. But when you start about the vastness of uh, the solar system and beyond, you can do things in those sorts of numbers. And that, maybe it freaks, maybe it scares people, maybe inspires them, but just sit with that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, sure. It's like, a, it's it, imagine if there was an, another unutilized continent on Earth and you were able to be one of the first companies to to settle it and find resources there and build industry there. It, it's an enormous opportunity, it really is. Yeah. I, I was just on, was looking at the Wikipedia page a couple of weeks ago um, for the treaty of um, the sale of the, the Alaska purchase from Russia, from the United States, from Russia. 
And at the time, Russia did not know that there was gold and all the other resources. But you would have, and they didn't, I mean, it was a lot of money back then. It was like $18 million or something like that. Eight million or 18 million, somewhere in between sure. there, which is a lot of money back then. But still, for what they gave up, even if there was no gold, mm -hmm. just in terms of the beauty and saying, look, parks, tourism, it's a, I'm still kind of amazed that, um, that that was sold. And, and I think space has this sort of thing that there's these things, it's kind of like it's right there. We don't even recognize like how, it's not even just about like commercializing, just the fact that we're gonna have like people like doing what we do here on earth, but like, you know, you know, playing and, and just in space in the solar system. Um, I think people start thinking as if we're gonna be migrating. Right. People sometimes talk about the word settle and colonizing, which I know are, um, can be very inflammatory words and they're debatable. So I've started shifting to using the word migration. Mm -hmm. And migrations don't always happen one way. You know, birds can go north, south, east, west, they're seasonal. You know, we might eventually go off to the moon for a, a vacation or spend a longer term stay, but come back to earth. Or there might be those who will be living most of their life on the moon, but they'll go for a, a visit to the earth and come back to their, uh, you know, to their, uh, you know, other non-celestial place of, of origin. <laughs> yeah. And I think the, the uh, idea of the Alaska purchase is a very apt comparison because at the time, Alaska was hard to get to, hard to settle. There was there was no 7-Eleven. There was no gas station. Like there was nothing. It was barren. No Tim Horton. No Tim Hortons. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not moving there. And yet it could have, it, it, it had the potential in the future once the technology allowed and the economic activity allowed. And that is that is what's, we're just at the at the edge of that happening in space. And, and something I, I played around with it, um, this idea, I, I read some papers on this, on the, um, and I can't think of the author right now, but they were they were talking about the there's a fund in Alaska that the government has called the Alaska Oil Impact Fund, something like that. Or mm. essentially, every citizen of the state of Alaska, if there is a profit made, they get they get a check. Um, some years they do better than others. Um, and I thought I was like, God, wouldn't it be cool? And this is you know, if you know the resources, you know somebody finds, you know, they're taking some resources from an asteroid and that the entrepreneur should be properly, you know, you know, compensated for their risk and the, the investors and entrepreneurs that that risked. But if there was a way to create some type of fund where like everyone on the planet Earth could also like benefit from that. And that's like difficult to, to, to execute. But I but I think, you know, if we had things like with blockchain, you actually maybe could where like every individual has like this, this address. And there's like, you know, you know, money allocated to that address and people can choose whether or not how they, they want that to spend that. So I think sometimes I, I like to play in those ideas of pushing the envelope, you know, even if it's not very realistic or real re at this point, you know, what you can kind of kind of do with the solar system. So that's fascinating because I just uh, I rarely uh, tweet. And when I do, I rarely get a response. But I responded to somebody else's tweet who said basically um, something to the effect of, I don't see a, uh, a mutiny or a, or a revolution on Mars 
because you don't see any mutinies on the International Space Station. You don't see battle. Like basically what, what the argument was is we're going to be more civilized once we get to space. But what you're saying um, says to me that it almost writes a future where the Martians rebel because they don't want to pay us our little stipend on Earth. That is true. That is true. And you could see that in it's 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 a kind of a polar extreme but in the tv show in the book series the expanse yes mars is the martians are very pissed off people they are very <laughs> unhappy and they've evolved to be um a military uh, uh you know militarized um authority um and you know you you can see potentially new ip being developed in another place off planet Earth. And yep. those developers, the IP saying, I don't want to give a royalty back to, I don't want to pay a tax back then. So I think these are fair discussion points, um, how humans can hopefully behave civil, more civilly to address so. those and come to compromise. Um, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. <laughs> um, in the same exchange, the, the point I raised um, I don't know if you're familiar with a YouTube channel called Economics Explained. Um, I have seen it, but I don't think I have it bookmarked. Okay, well, they but I have they, seen it. They have one episode where they they explain, or at least they explore the notion that cold countries tend to be more uh, affluent. They have higher GDPs. And the argument basically boils down to winter's hard. And so winter forces you to industrialize so that you have food and shelter in the winter. Well, imagine than what an, uh, a civilization on Mars would have to accomplish. And once they've accomplished it, they would create technologies and economic might that might exceed our own. Yeah. It's a really interesting future to speculate on. I've kept you so long. It's already been like the whole duration. I only have two questions left. Sure. Thank you so much for your generosity. I appreciate your time. So the, the, the second, la the penultimate question is about you attending the International Space University, where you wrote a paper titled Solving Land Rights Challenges Using G Space. Let me start again. Solving Land Rights Challenges Using Satellite Geospatial Data and the Blockchain. That is a very intriguing title. What are some of the findings in that research? Um, I co-wrote co that with uh, Kartik Kumar. Um, and he's based in the Netherlands. And we looked at potentially trying to commercialize this idea of um, there are millions, if not potentially greater than a billion more people who still don't have secure light rights to their own land. Or there's ambiguities um, because, you know, someone's on their land there. It's not every place has um, really well-defined things like boundaries and maps. I mean, there's just, there's, and, and, and people's security to their land is, is actually quite important towards um, financial independence and getting out of poverty. And we thought, you know, in some of these places, maybe you could start using different types of geospatial data. There's places where maps have been changed and there's, there's even issues like, um, you know, deal with fraud and corruption. But if you're able to sort of take um, some of these records and, and and put them on blockchains and just more secure them so that if it was tampered with, you would at least know it had been tampered. What we found in our attempt to um, try to commercially explore and develop something like this was that 
The challenge wasn't so much more technological, but was more political and social. That, you know, government's not willing to use some of these new technologies, yet there's sometimes places where there's so much customary law. Um, it's very difficult as an outsider to come in and and basically say, I have this technology, you all must use it, or you all need to use it. And they're like, what you, we've been here for a long time. What you, who are you? <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of well, part of the I, I read, I read somewhere, I, I forget what, the, I, this is over a decade ago that I read this, but they, they were describing how in some countries, you only know you've gone from one property to another because a different dog is barking. So wow. it's like, it's like property rights are secured on the dog chain, not the blockchain. That's yeah, that's very interesting point. Um, so technology doesn't solve every everything. It's just a matter of, you know, again, it's like being kind of open when you're first doing discovery. This was a perfect example. We had this kind of an academic paper. We looked at seeing where it could potentially be productized or commercialized, and we realized it wasn't the right timing. I think it's I think it's an excellent premise. I I, I hope you get to dust that off and and find another use for it because maybe it doesn't have to be global. Maybe it can be many countries. Yeah, I mean, there was something we had learned like in the process. The UN had a pilot program where I think in Thailand with farmers they were giving them tablets and they were just sort of taking photos of their land. You know, some some I mean, there was a lot of different there were a lot of different pilot programs, but some things were kind of as basic as that, and that didn't necessitate a lot of other expensive technology yeah yeah you're you're right you have to you have to really adjust to your environment so my last question um you you wrote i i'm pretty sure this is your line i'm sorry i keep doing that but i, yeah, I no took worries. notes as i read the book and and yeah. i forget where to attribute it but the relationship between science fiction and science fact in this case has been an incredible two-way street. And this is a reference to Star Trek and what's actually happening in the world. Uh, that there's been this interplay of people saying, you know, uh, imagining a future and putting it into fiction, and then people trying to imagine a future and getting inspiration from fiction. So what is science fiction now that you're most excited about seeing in the near future in space? Um. I think artif artificial gravity, because like how many science fiction space based shows do we watch last night? I was watching Voyager with my wife and I'm always like thinking, going, OK, they never really talk about how are they addressing the gravity issue? <laughs> it just never, you know, there's always or if it's addressed, it's just we have a magic button, at least in expanse. You know, they've got like their magnetic shoes. Um, rotation. You know, they do, yeah, rotation. Um, I, I think I think it's kind of time that we start experimenting with building some different variable gravity structures even if they can be small so we can put some um small mammals in them and you know chain you know have different you know martian gravity earth gravity moon gravity um but i would like to see my lifetime you know sort of an o'neill like structure built i mean that's that's kind of i think that would be my personal request for sure. Excellent choice. Thank you very much, Robert, for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Tim. It was a lot of fun. It's my pleasure. My guest today was Robert Jacobson. A link to Robert's book, Space is Open for Business, will be in the show notes. 
My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 